But when you're having an affair, you just feel like everything's perfect. Every like how how can this relationship be so perfect? You're listening to the B podcast. Make friends, learn new things, and feel understood. Now here's your host, Sage Lally. Hey you, and welcome back to the B podcast. Today I'm excited to be chatting with Gina Frangello. Gina is the author of four books of fiction in addition to her debut memoir, Blow Your House Down, A Story of Family, Feminism, and Treason, a book the LA Times called her most lyrical, adventurous, and important work. In addition to her works of fiction, Gina has 20 years of experience as an editor, and her short fiction, essays, book reviews, and journalism have been published in the Boston Globe, the Chicago Tribune, HuffPost, BuzzFeed, and many other publications. Hello, Gina. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Before we get started, I would love if you could tell me a bit more about who you are and what you do. I'm here talking about my fifth book, which is called Blow Your House Down, Story of Family, Feminism, and Treason. It is my debut memoir. I have four books of fiction prior, um, the best known of which is probably A Life in Men, which was my third book, um, a novel. And I also have a long, long history of editing many publications like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus. I'm now creative nonfiction editor at the LA Review of Books. I used to have my own indie press called Other Voices Books that grew out of Other Voices Magazine and a program in Mexico that was connected to Other Voices Books. So I've basically been in a lot of different incarnations of publishing since I was, you know, maybe 26. So for half my life at this point. So I want to hear a bit more about your inspiration to write Blow Your House Down. If you had written all of these fiction books, what inspired you to write a memoir? I had published a lot of short form nonfiction for probably 20 years before this book came out about that long. Um, But I really didn't have much intention of writing a memoir. I had kind of a vague aspiration of writing um, an essay collection of of pieces about my parents and caregiving my parents because I had published a lot of those online. And, you know, people would often say you should do a book of this. So in about 2015, 2016, so my father had just died. I was getting a divorce after a 23-year marriage And I had just been diagnosed with breast cancer. And so a lot of shit was hitting the fan and I was just not able to access the part of my mind that is generally always devoted to spinning several different fiction books at a time, you know, like what I'm writing now, what I want to write, et cetera. Um, It just shut down. And that was the first time that had literally ever happened to me. I've been writing fiction since I was four years old. And um, so... I didn't know what to do. So I decided I'll put together this essay collection about my parents. And so I stuck all the essays that I'd ever published about them next to each other being like, "Woo, here's my essay collection. And it turned out that they were super repetitive because of course there's a different, there's a different technique in short form work where everything has to be in a self-contained universe versus a book where it's like, once you've explained something once, like my father had been in the mental institution, you don't have to actually give all that background again and again. So when I kind of stripped down the bones to get rid of the repetition, not only factually, but emotionally, like hitting the same emotional notes, 
I had very little of a book. So at the same time, I'd been journaling. I journal a lot. I've journaled most of my life. Um, I had been journaling a lot about what was going on in my actual life. And I had been not showing it to anyone, not regarding it as, you know, my career material, you know, just as my personal material. But I was invited to do a reading series um, here in Chicago, and I decided to read a bit from it. So I typed it up and you know, decided to read it. And um, it, it got a really powerful response. And so that gave me the nerve to kind of keep going and then show some to my writing group. And then they were basically like, this is absolutely all part of the book. And so then there I went. What inspired you to make the overall kind of premise of your book, this story with your lover and your ex-husband and the impact of that? So, um, well, it was a lot of what was going on. One of the things that I talk about in the book, you know, there were many things going on. And and obviously at some points, um, you know, my health narrative was was kind of consuming my life. But I say in the book, um, ultimately, that other people, which I guess I include myself in that, can hurt us more than our bodies can. And what I found during this period of my life was that having breast cancer and having a bilateral mastectomy and going through chemo was almost kind of a backdrop of my life. Whereas I felt like this normally would be a very dominant narrative, right? If you're living through this. Um, but I was in the middle of not only a, a divorce that was kind of growing increasingly dramatic and contentious, but also um, in the middle of trying to navigate, um, you know, something that had been a long distance, clandestine, on and off again, three-year affair into a normal on the ground relationship. And I thought that that was really complex and interesting because I think that um, irrespective of what we may feel about the morality of affairs, like a lot of people, when you're having an affair, you just feel like, oh my God, like everything's perfect. Every, like how, how can this relationship be so perfect? And in my case, it was someone I'd known for a very long time who was already a close friend when the affair began. So, you know, it didn't really occur to me that part of what I was experiencing was an affair bubble and where you just don't have to bring your difficult shit to each other because you're each married to other people. Probably those marriages aren't going that well if you're having an affair. Um, and so your difficult stuff stays there. And so that became a really central thing I wanted to examine. Um, I am married now to the to the man that I had the affair with. We did, um, you know, we did come to work those things out, but it was not it was not the breezy process that I think people may imagine when they're in an affair. And I wanted to really interrogate that without, you know, I do have a lot of guilt about the affair. I think everyone who has an affair, unless they're like a sociopath, has guilt, you know, but I wanted to sort of explore the complexities without necessarily just bringing down this hammer of like affair, bad, it'll never work, you know, because sometimes it does, but not in the ways you imagine when you're in that bubble. When do you feel like love is no longer enough to continue to be in a relationship or a friendship with someone? I mean, I think the answer to that is actually quite simple, even though the extrication is not simple. Um, when 
when you're happy or when you're not with someone, when you feel like you're not your best self in that relationship, when you feel like you're walking on eggshells and, and that you can't be real or things will go badly, you know, all of those things. I mean, there's a continuum, obviously, of, of, of when a relationship goes bad. Like, clearly, if somebody you know, punches you in the face, like no matter how you feel about them, you need to leave the relationship, you know, but, but in my case, things were much more subtle. I just had a lot of anxiety in my relationship, a lot of feeling like I was constantly managing my behavior in order to try to manage everyone else's reaction. And when you feel yourself just kind of exhaling when you're not together, you can love somebody very much in concept, but if you're not good together anymore, you know, I won't make a blanket statement like it's time to leave because I think that everybody has their own interpretation of, you know, what has the highest value. You know, it would have been a perfectly valid choice for me to decide to put that on the back burner and not to prioritize it and to prioritize the family unit. Many people do that and I don't have any judgment of them for it. I, people probably have much more judgment towards me because that's not what I did. But you know, I think that there's validity in both paths. I know that your book starts out with discussing your father's mental illness and the impact that that had on you as a child and then also your family. Can you talk a bit more about what the experience was like for you having a mentally ill parent and how that impacted your relationship with your father. Absolutely. So, you know, the interesting thing is that I grew up sort of under the shadow of this, of this fact that my father had been institutionalized um, and he had not been institutionalized for minor reasons. He was hearing voices that told him to kill my mother and himself. So that was pretty intense. That happened about a year before my birth. My father did go into an institution of his own choice because when he began to have that experience after several months of, of very volatile mental health, he told my mother, take me to the hospital so I can't hurt you. And um, he went into the hospital and the entire time he was there, he was begging my mother to leave him and my mother would not leave him. And I was born a year later and you know, by that point, my father was doing much better. In fact, he often talked. One of the wisest things my father, I think, ever said with regard to parenting was that, you know, it was the first time he had not been solely focused on himself. And that if you can achieve that, it, it was quite good for his mental health. Um, so while I was young, my father was weird. We had like 10 locks on our front door even though we lived in a really poor neighborhood and had absolutely nothing of value inside, you know, he slept in the living room kind of to guard the door. He was a, a very eccentric man. But because I lived in a neighborhood where many of my friends didn't have fathers and many of my friends who did have fathers had fathers who were kind of abusive um, or not kind of fully abusive, I don't think I knew how, how eccentric and and mentally ill, my father was until later. You know, we all loved him. He was also one of the funniest and kindest people I've ever known. I feel lucky to have had him for my father, despite or inclusive of all that. 
Why do you feel like Blow Your House Down is a story that needed to be told and read by other people? You know, while Blow Your House Down is a very intense and personal and intimate memoir, my view of it is that I am a lens to something bigger than me, right? I'm trying very hard in the book to excavate the roles of women in society, not just right now, but in the past, um, you know, middle and upper middle class women as I became when I was older, women in poverty as I was when I was younger, the socialization of girls, um, you know, what we think of as equality that maybe isn't equality. Um, I'm hopefully putting myself sort of between what would have just been a book of like didactic theory and preaching or whatever. I'm trying to show things through my own life, but I also talk about these issues with regard to like gender theory and so forth um, and popular culture and film, you know, the sort of like fetishization of the self-destruction of women, all of these different things that I'm trying to get at through examining my own, you know, as a 53 year old person and the book ends when I'm 50 through like a half century of my life and also my mother's life and and the lives of you know some girls in my old neighborhood and so forth so i think for a lot of women we do try to tell ourselves kind of particularly a lot of white women i mean you know i'm not talking about women of color who i think are fully aware that you know that the this business of equality is is a load of shit you know but a lot of white women, women with a certain amount of economic privilege, I think really are living in a little bit of a storybook fantasy of thinking that like, oh, you know, the misogyny of the world does not apply to me. I have made it. Oh, if I can make it, why can't everybody else? And how easy it is for that house of cards to kind of collapse. And, um, and how also, you know, and this is why I'm donating the royalties of the book to, um, uh, an organization called Deborah's Place that that helps um, women facing homelessness, like, but that essentially until all women have attained equality, which not even wealthy white women have attained, even though they often are complicit in the patriarchy's keeping down of other women, um, but that until all women have attained this, you know, no one has. Where can we find you on the internet and where can we buy your book? So you can buy my book probably just, I mean, anywhere, but, um, but, you know, I love to endorse women and children first bookstore. It's one of the only remaining feminist bookstores in the country. It's here in Chicago. Um, I have had many of my launch parties there. They're absolutely wonderful. Um, obviously bookshop.org is giving back money to independent bookstores. It has been throughout the pandemic. You can find me online, um, at, at ginafrangelo.org. Um, but you can also find my business. I work as a developmental editor with um, my very good friend and just all around brilliant writer, Emily Rapp Black. And we have a company called Circe Consulting, which is at CirceConsulting.net. Um, and yeah, you can find you everywhere. <laughs> You're all over the internet. Thank you for listening to The Bee Podcast with your host, Sage Lally. If you liked today's episode, be sure to leave us a review. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Your story has the power to help others. If you step out in boldness and have the bravery to tell it, 
there are people here who will listen. You just have to speak. That's all for now. See you next time. Bye.